The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Will you stand now together as you're able for the reading of God's Word? So this morning we'll be reading all of of chapter 19 from Numbers. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law that the Lord has commanded. Tell the people of Israel to bring you a red heifer without defect, in which there is no blemish, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eleazar the priest, and it shall be taken outside the camp and slaughtered before him. And Eleazar the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood toward the front of the tent of meeting seven times. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its skin, its flesh, and its blood, with its dung, shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet yarn and throw them into the fire, burning the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns the heifer shall wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. And a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And they shall be kept for the water for impurity for the congregation of the people of Israel. It is a sin offering. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. He shall cleanse himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and so be clean. But if he does not cleanse himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from Israel, because the water for impurity was not thrown on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave shall be unclean seven days. For the unclean, they shall take some ashes of the burnt sin offering and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. Then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the persons who were there and on whoever touched the bone or the slain, or the dead, or the grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. Thus, on the seventh day, he shall cleanse himself, and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water, and at evening he shall be clean. If the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly, since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. Because the water for impurity has not been thrown on him, he is unclean, and it shall be a statute forever for them. The one who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes, and the one who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. And whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean until evening. This is God's word for this morning. Well... Anytime the Stair family travels, we never leave home without our yak kit. What's a yak kit, you ask? Well, one of our kids is prone to car sickness. So yeah, it's, it's that kind of yak. Um, so that the yak kit ha- has everything that we need in the event that our car sick child should yak. Um, throw up, vomit, because it's messy. And, and the first time this happened, it, it was messy, and we didn't learn from that. We didn't prepare. And the second time it happened, it was, 
it was really messy. And so now we never leave home without our yak kit, even if we're just driving around in town. And so what's in the yak kit, you ask? Well, there is a yak towel. This is not just a hand towel. No, no, a hand towel is not enough. This is a full-size bath towel, okay? We have some paper towels, not just some paper towels, an entire roll of paper towels, like the bounty, you know, bigger picker-upper kind of thing. We have wet wipes, which our kids have outgrown, uh, but they're just so darn useful, aren't they? And so we, we have those with us as well. And, of course, a plastic bag, probably two plastic bags. This is the kind of thing you want to double bag uh, to put kind of all of the, the soiled items after we have, we've cleaned up um, after the, the car sickness. And so anytime we have an incident, there's a basic procedure to follow for cleanup. In fact, this last summer we were traveling with some friends. They don't have car sickness issues. But on this particular trip, one of their kids got sick. Guess what they didn't have? A yak kit. But we had one. So we pulled over at the nearest gas station. We, we got them all cleaned up. Um, and so look, Numbers 19, make the connection here soon, I promise. Um, it, it's all about making and using a different kind of cleaning kit of sorts for a much more serious problem than car sickness. You see, Numbers 19 is all about what God's people are supposed to do if, we might even say when, they come into contact with a dead body. That's a little strange, isn't it? Like, maybe as you were reading, or as, as, as Sandy was reading the passage, maybe you caught yourself wondering, well, now, why is this necessary? And, and why is this particular chapter, chapter 19, why is this here in the middle of the book of Numbers? Well, the answer is found in the surrounding context. And so before we jump into Numbers 19 this morning, it's going to be really important for us to make sure that we are familiar with and aware of this surrounding context, in particular the chapters that precede Numbers 19. We should, we should go all the way back to Numbers chapter 14, actually, where, where we, looked, we, we looked at this, I think it was uh, three weeks ago. Do you remember what happened in Numbers 13 and 14? We had spies who were sent into the promised land. And so God's people, they've, they've come to the cusp of realizing the promise that God had made to His people. They're on the edge of the promised land and spies are sent in to scope out the land, to scope out the people who live in the land, to scope out the cities. And they came back with a bad, inaccurate report of what they had seen. They said that the land, the land devours its inhabitants. And the people that live in the land, they're, they're giants. We look like grasshoppers next to them. And their report, it, it scared God's people and led ultimately to their rebellion. In fact, in the midst of this rebellion, they were ready to stone their leaders, Moses and Aaron, Caleb and Joshua, and choose new leaders to guess what? Lead them back to the land of Egypt, back into slavery. Now, of course, the Lord could have just wiped these people out. Right then and there. But, thanks to the intercession of Moses, the, the Lord didn't strike down His people. But he, he did pass judgment upon them, and it was this. In Numbers 14, the Lord said, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead body shall fall in this wilderness. And all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Remember the census that took place all the way back in the beginning of the book. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones, who you said would become a prey... I will bring in, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds 
in the wilderness for 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness. You see that the census that was taken at the beginning of the book of Numbers, it was now going to take on new significance, wasn't it? Once account of all those in Israel who would go to war in the conquest of the promised land, it was now a record of all the Israelites, 20 years of age and older, who would be destined to die in the wilderness, never again to see the promised land, never to step foot in the promised land. Now in Numbers 2, we're told that 603,550 were listed in the census. And remember, this is just men 20 years of age and older. This doesn't include women 20 years of age and older. It's estimated that the population of Israel at this point could have been around the, the 2 million to 2.5 million person mark by this, this point in time. And the Lord's judgment was that Israel wouldn't enter the promised land until the, the entire adult generation of these two plus million people had, had passed away, had died. In other words, the path to the promised land would be a path littered with dead bodies. Hundreds of thousands of the Israelites would die in the wilderness before this younger generation would be allowed to enter into the promised land. And, and as we read from chapter 14, that death toll begins to mount pretty quickly, doesn't it? In Numbers 14, uh, 37, we see that the spies who brought the bad and inaccurate report about the promised land, they died by plague before the Lord. Ten dead bodies. The end of chapter 14, an undisclosed number of Israelites died when they attempted to take matters into their own hands, take the promised land on their own without the help in the presence of the Lord. Well, they, they fell to the Amalekites and the Canaanites. We don't know how many died, but we know that a number of them did. In chapter 15. We see the Sabbath breaker executed. In chapter 16, all those who belonged to Korah and their households were swallowed up by the earth and went alive into Sheol. And then fire comes out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense in the rebellion. And then we see 14,700 Israelites who assembled against Moses in Korah's rebellion. They died in the plague. The death toll is mounting. And we see the same in the passages that, that follow Numbers 19. And in chapter 20, in the very next chapter after our chapter today, we're told about the death of Miriam and the death of Aaron. Chapter 21, we read that many people of Israel are bitten by fiery serpents and they die. In chapter 25, 24,000 Israelites die in a plague after engaging in worship of a false god. You see, for the Israelites, death would have been a part of everyday life. And coming into contact with the dead would have been a common occurrence, an unavoidable occurrence. And guess what? Like, you don't just pick up the phone and call 911. Like, someone doesn't come into your house or someone doesn't come into the wilderness and, and, and clean up. Guess what? When the 24,000 die in the plague... Who deals with the 24,000 corpses? But God's people. And so, again, contact with the dead would have been a very common occurrence. And, and that was a problem. Because in addition to the usual things that we would associate with death, for example, grief and mourning, there was the very serious issue of uncleanness that also came with death. Ceremonial uncleanness We're told about this in our, in our passage whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean for seven days 
He shall cleanse himself with water on the third day and on the seventh day and so be clean. But if he does not clean himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not become clean. Whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, and does not cleanse himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. That is, banished from the land, banished from the camp, excommunicated from the people of God. Because the water for impurity was not thrown on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. You see, touching a dead body made you unclean. In fact, not just that, but we also read in this passage that merely being in the same room as a dead body, well, it made you unclean. Touching a human bone made you unclean. Touching a grave made you unclean. And of course, to come into contact with someone who had been made unclean, due to a dead body, would make you unclean. Or touching an item that an unclean person touched because they've been made unclean by a dead body would would also render you unclean. That was to become unclean yourself. That's the thing with uncleanness. That's the thing with death. It, It spreads. Like I said, it, it wasn't just people who were unclean, but but objects as well. For example, if someone died in a tent, if there were any vessels that were not sealed with a lid, so if you got like a a bowl over here, a vase over here, and they weren't sealed with a lid, these objects would become unclean as well. So death, it has this defiling effect. It has this contaminating effect. But you might still be asking yourself, what's the big deal with being unclean, ceremonially unclean? I think all the way back again to, to the beginning of our Numbers series. Do you remember how Israel's camp was arranged? It looked like this. Thanks to resident artist, Pastor Todd, who put this together for us. What do we see here? We, we see the various tribes arranged around the perimeter, priests and Levites, a little bit closer to the center, and what is located at the very center of the camp? It's the tabernacle. And what's significant about the tabernacle? The tabernacle is the dwelling place of the Lord. The tabernacle is where the Lord in all His holiness and all His glory comes to dwell amongst His people. And so the problem with uncleanness is that Israel's camp is where the Lord in all His holiness is present with His people. Um, the, the InterVarsity Press, they have a, a dictionary of the Old Testament Pentateuch. and it, The dictionary summarizes it in this way. They say the major danger in becoming unclean lay in coming into contact with the holy. Unclean, coming into contact with the holy, that's a problem. For holiness is powerful, consuming all that is unclean. And elsewhere, it comments on the defiling nature of death in particular, which was the strongest of all defilements. It's the worst way to be defiled and to become unclean. And they write, death was so defiling because on the one hand, it was the opposite of life and holiness. Death is the opposite of life. And on the other hand, it was the punishment on all humans for the brazen disobedience of the first humans against God. So then, The defilement and uncleanness of death was dangerous for the camp. To become ceremonially unclean by way of contact with the corpse, for example, was to be a danger both to yourself, but also to others around you. It was potentially to put the entire people of God in danger, at risk. And so if you were unclean, you had to leave the camp. That was the rule. That was the command given by the Lord. 
You had to leave this camp. Temporarily cut off from fellowship with your kinsmen, yes, but also cut off from fellowship with and in the presence of the Lord Himself. And that's where the incredible and merciful provision of this cleansing ritual that's laid out in our passage today comes in. Follow it, and you would be washed clean, rejoining the camp after seven days. And failure to do so would result in a person being cut off from the people of God and from the presence of God permanently. And so then, what we have here in Numbers 19, it's, it's a solution to the death problem that Israel has. It's, it's about cleansing and purification in the wilderness. It's a, a solution for the problem of contamination and the defilement that comes from contact with the dead. And it involves special ashes that are mixed together with fresh water to make something the text calls water for impurity. You see, instead of a yak kit, the people of Israel would carry a death kit of sorts for when they inevitably came into contact with the dead. And so here's where we're going to go with the rest of our time here today. Number one, we're going to take a look at the recipe for this kit, a recipe for the ashes, instructions for making the ashes. And we find this in the first half, the first 10 verses of the chapter. And secondly, we're going to look at the procedure, instructions for using these ashes, which we find in the second half of the chapter. And then thirdly, last but not least, we're going to look at the application. What does this mean for you and for me? What is the practical application of all of this for us as we sit here today? And so let's let's look at that recipe first. Now the recipe for the water for impurity calls for two things, two things, namely water and ashes. But not just any ashes. You weren't just like scooping some ashes from your your fire pit. These were special ashes that began with the sacrifice of a very special animal. We, We see that it begins with the sacrifice of a red heifer. Not a bull, not a lamb, which is interesting, peculiar, but a red heifer. One that was without defect, without blemish, one that had never been used for work. No, no yoke had ever been placed upon it. And this, the sacrifice of this peculiar animal was peculiar in and of itself for at least a couple of reasons. Number one, the sacrifice is carried out by the priest, in this case, Eleazar. But the sacrifice takes place outside the camp not by the altar in the tabernacle. Interesting. When, while it was common for burning to happen outside the camp, it was not common at all for sacrifice to happen outside the camp. That typically happened inside the camp at the altar. Second reason this was unique. The priest takes some blood, he sprinkles it in the direction of the tent of meeting seven times, probably wouldn't hit the tent of meeting. Remember, he's all the way outside the camp. But what happens to the rest of the blood? The rest of the blood is burned along with the heifer. And commentators are quick to point out, this is the only time in the Old Testament that we see an animal's blood burned as a part of an offering. The only time. And this is a significant point, especially when we get to the third point of the sermon where we're going to talk about application. But it's important for the Israelites as well. 
See, these ashes are going to be, the ashes produced through this process, they're going to be mixed with water for the purpose of, of cleansing and purification. This water is going to be sprinkled upon the unclean. And, and the writer of Hebrews reminds us about the importance of blood in particular for God's people in the sacrificial system in which they operated. Hebrews 9.22 reminds us, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified of blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so if, if we want to be about the, the work of cleansing and purification in the wilderness, then the kit, the kit must include blood. If you're going to be clean from the defilement of death, you're going to need blood. And along with the heifer, we see cedarwood, hyssop, and scarlet yarn included as well. They're burned along with the heifer and its blood, which, it could be argued, contribute to the red blood-colored mixture as it's born, or as it's burned, rather. What we're left with, of course, is a bunch of ashes which are collected by a, a, a ceremonially clean person and stored safely in a clean location until a point at which they are needed. And these are the ashes. It will be combined with fresh water to make the water for, for impurity, which we're told how to use in the second half of the passage. But our, our instructions for making these ashes ends with this in verse 10. It says, And this shall be a perpetual statute for the people of Israel for the str- and for the stranger who sojourns among them. You see, this wasn't a purification ritual uh, just for this generation of God's people in particular. This would be a purification ritual for generations and generations and generations of God's people. And not just for God's people, but also for strangers who were sojourning among them. That brings us then to the second half of the passage, where we see the procedure outlined, instructions for using the ashes. And again, to recap, we've established touching a dead body made a person unclean, and the only way the person could be made clean once again was to be washed with this water for impurity, a a mixture of the ashes we just talked about, and fresh water. Without this water for impurity, a person remained unclean. And once again, this, this came with serious consequences. Numbers 19.20 tells us about it. If the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly, since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. Because the water for impurity has not been thrown on him, he is unclean. But, by using the water for impurity, by using it properly, by following these instructions that are outlined here, the person would only be unclean for seven days. And then they got to rejoin the camp. They were once again washed clean. And in general, the procedure looked like this. The unclean person would be washed with water on the third day and also would be washed with water again on the seventh day. And that would render the person ceremonially clean on that seventh day. Verses 14 through 16 give some more specific instructions on use cases. For example, if someone dies in a tent, then everyone in the tent with the body is unclean for seven days and must go through the cleansing process. Washing with this water for purification on the third and seventh day. So then, it wasn't just physical contact with the dead body that made you unclean, but again, just being in the same room. Additionally, every open vessel, we talked about that already, would need to be washed. Touching someone who was killed in a field, presumably in a military conflict, was unclean, uh, made you unclean for seven days. Touching someone who died of natural causes made you unclean for seven days. Touching a human bone or grave made you unclean for seven days. In all these cases, a person would need to be washed with this water. Specifically, this is what the process would look like. For the unclean, they shall take some ashes of the burnt sin offering, and fresh water shall be added in a vessel. 
Then a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the person, on the persons who were there and on whoever touched the bone or the slain or the dead or the grave. And the clean person shall sprinkle it on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh. Thus on the seventh day he shall cleanse himself and he shall wash his clothes and bathe, clothes and bathe himself in water and at evening he shall be clean. And then at the end of the chapter, at the end of these instructions for purification, we read these familiar words once again and it shall be a statute forever for them. Once again, this is it's not just a one-time thing. This isn't a seasonal thing. This isn't a, 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 a generational thing. Just, just for this particular generation of God's people, this is a statute that would continue from generation to generation. Now, at this point, you, you might still be asking some questions. <laughs> questions like, so what? Right? These primitive rituals, and they do seem primitive, what do they have to do with us as Christians in 2023? It's like, honestly, frankly, for the majority of us, contact with dead bodies is going to be an extremely rare occurrence. Many of us will probably go through our entire lives without coming into contact with a dead body. And and if, if this is a statute to be observed forever, don't we sit here on that timeline? Aren't we a part of forever? And, and so, like, in what way does this apply to us still today? And, and, and so let's, in our, our third point here, let's, let's talk about the modern day significance of the ashes. Let's answer the question, what does this mean for you and for me as Christians. Now, one commentator, Adrian Reynolds, he captures the connection between Numbers 19 and, and modern-day believers really well. He writes this, Though this provision is meant to be a portable and convenient, a, a kind of instant coffee type of cleaning, and it is portable and convenient, isn't it? It can be moved around to any place outside the camp, whenever and wherever it is needed. The people need to understand that death is still required for cleansing. In order to be cleansed from the defilement of death, a death would need to occur, the red heifer. However, this provision only deals with ceremonial cleansing. Cleansing that is outward. It does not and cannot deal with inward impurity. The people cannot approach God ceremonially unclean. But the provision of cleansing in Numbers 19 is still unable to deal with the heart and consciences from acts that lead to death. Quoting Hebrews 9.14, leaving us crying out for a better sacrifice. In other words, the sacrifice, this water for, for impurity, these ashes that that we see the recipe for and instructions for use in, in Numbers 19. They were effective for cleansing the outside of one's body, but, but couldn't penetrate the human heart. Nor could it penetrate the human conscience. And then he writes, everyone knows that however good instant coffee is, it is never as good as a real thing. Can I get an amen? We have coffee drinkers. We went to visit uh, some friends of ours who live in Wichita, and they were missionaries for a short period of time. And uh, while they were missionaries, they just they learned to drink instant coffee. And when they came back, they just kept drinking the, the instant coffee. It was kind of nostalgic. To this day, when you go to, to visit their house, uh, it's, it's instant coffee waiting for you in the morning. I could be a bit of a coffee snob, and it... It's a jarring thing if you've had instant coffee. If you haven't, I encourage you to try it. Go buy some, some just like Maxwell House instant coffee. You know, mix it together with some, some boiling water. Give it a try. It's, it's nothing like the real thing. And that's what Reynolds is telling us here. It's never as good as a real thing. It is convenient, portable, and quick, but, but not as tasty. It, it never smells as good. 
Death is a real problem for Israel, and this clever and useful provision deals with the ceremonial problem, but it cannot address the deeper issue. This water for purification. I mean, imagine 14,700 dead, 24,000 dead, hundreds of thousands dead before this younger generation is able to enter into the land. What, what incredible provision. These ashes, this water for impurity was, and, and yet it doesn't smell quite as good as a real thing. It's, it's almost as if, brothers and sisters, it's, it's almost if these ashes are stoking our appetite, heightening our senses for something better. can't address the deeper issue. And what is that deeper issue? The deeper issue is that man isn't just outwardly unclean. We're also inwardly unclean. See, ultimately, we have the same dilemma as the Old Testament Israelites. It's the dilemma of an unclean people in the presence of a holy God. That's not just a primitive them problem. That's a modern-day current us Problem. How, how can Israel, a people surrounded by death, which makes one ceremonially unclean, exist in, exist in the presence of a holy God? Good question. How can we, a people who are inwardly unclean? Paul writes that the wages of sin, our sin, your sin, my sin, are the, the wages of our sin is death. How, how can we, who are inwardly unclean, enjoy fellowship with and draw near to a holy God? That's a good question. This is our dilemma. We have the same dilemma as they had. And you see, Israel, they, they had their sacrificial system. But as the New Testament writer of the book of Hebrews tells us, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These ashes, the water for purification, they were never the real thing. This was never the desired end. They were always pointing forward to something better. And in the same way, it's impossible for the, the blood of, of bulls and goats and red heifers to make you and I inwardly clean or to deal with matters of heart and conscience. So what then? What's the point of Numbers 19? Well, that brings us to two very key verses in Hebrews 9, which, which gives us some, some real significant insight. Hebrews 9, chapters 13 and 14, the writer of Hebrews writes this, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, does that sound familiar? That's a direct reference to Numbers 19. It's talking about our passage. If the, the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify, that is, set apart or make holy, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If the ashes of a red heifer can purify a person externally, how much more, the writer of Hebrews says, how much more can the blood of Christ purify a person internally? What the writer of Hebrews is telling us here is that Numbers 19, it points forward, as we suspect, to a better sacrifice. Numbers 19 is all about Jesus. More specifically, Numbers 19 is all about the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus is the perfect, spotless sacrifice without blemish, without defect. Because Jesus suffered and was crucified where? Outside the camp, outside the gates of Jerusalem on Calvary. Abandoned and cut off from the camp so that we could be welcomed into the fold of God's presence and into the fold of God's flock, God's people, God's family. 
Jesus poured out his blood for us, cleansing us from all sin, purifying our conscience. As the, the prophet Isaiah tells us, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Jesus once and for all and for always and forever washes us clean from the uncleanness and defilement of sin and its wages, death. And how did he do this? Do you notice in this passage how everyone involved in the process must be clean to begin with? Did you notice this when Sandy was reading it? Everyone involved in the process begins as ceremonially uh, clean, but then becomes ceremonially unclean. The, the, The priest who does the sacrifice, the, the one who burns the heifer, the one who gathers the ashes, even the one who sprinkles the finished product on the third day and on the seventh day to make purification. The process of purification renders those involved in the process unclean. You see, to make someone else clean was to render oneself unclean. I wonder if this reminds us of anything. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Two pillars. This is what Jesus did for us on the cross. He who knew no sin, he who was perfectly righteous and holy, he who was without spot, without blemish, without sin, he became sin. He wasn't sinful himself, but what did he do? He took on our sin. He stood in our place. He took on our uncleanness. He who knew no sin became sin in order that you and I could come out the other side of the process clean. Forgiven, righteous, pure. Jesus, spotless, unblemished, without defect, became sin, bearing the death penalty for our sin, taking away the defilement of sin and death. And in the process, He washes us clean. So that that brings me to our question. What, What does this mean for you And for me, as Christians, I have three um, reasonably practical points of application for us this morning. The first is this. We have a death problem too. And we just need to be honest and sober-minded about this. Ephesians Ephesians 2.1 tells us that, that we too are dead in our trespasses and our sins. The wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. And so, especially if, if you're sitting here today and you've not trusted in the cleansing, purifying sacrifice of Jesus for you, you've got, you've got much bigger problems than contact with dead bodies. And that's because... Apart from faith in Jesus, you're dead yourself. Not physically dead. There's still a pulse. You're still breathing. Right? Your chest is still heaving. Spiritually speaking, you're dead. And because of that, you're unable to enter into the presence of God. You're cut off unable to enjoy fellowship with God unless unless you're washed clean. That brings us to our second point of application. And that is this, that Jesus purifies us from all uncleanness. The death of Christ purifies us. The blood of Christ purifies us from the contaminating effects of sin. And so, non-Christian, as you sit here today, apart from faith in Jesus, 
Scriptures are clear. You are spiritually dead, cut off from fellowship with God. But Jesus can purify you. Jesus can make fellowship with God a possibility. Jesus has made a way for you. Hebrews 9.14 says that He purifies our conscience from dead works. Though you have been rendered unclean simply by way of, not, not by way of contact with another dead body, just by way of contact with your own dead works, works that apart from Christ lead you to death. But Jesus, he, he purifies us from our dead works. Hebrews, uh, Ephesians 2, rather, continues, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So Jesus makes a way for the dead to live. The spiritually dead to be spiritually alive. And He makes a way for you to be washed clean. He became sin in order that you might be clothed in His righteousness. And and, and Christians, as you sit here today, look, I, I know you're bringing a lot with you. I know some of you are sitting here right now and you're just, you're menaced by your doubts. And because of them, you just, you feel kind of icky and unclean because I'm a Christian, I, I shouldn't have these doubts. Or, look, I, I know the week that you had. I, I, I know that you got carried away in anger and maybe you, you yelled at your spouse or a good friend or one of your kids and, and you're carrying that around now. I know you're coming to the to the men's reading group because there's this area of sin in your life that you just you haven't been able to shed you haven't been able to kick and look as as we carry these things around we we feel unclean we we feel defiled but look Christian if, if you're sitting here today the good news of the gospel of Jesus and the work that he's done for us in his life, death, and resurrection is that as you sit here today, you are clean. Full stop. Again, Ephesians 2 gives us this promise that, that he's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have been raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Who is present in the heavenly places but God Himself? How is it possible for an unclean person to be brought into the presence of a holy God? It's not possible. That's bad news for the unclean person. And so how is it that you and I have been united together with Christ and brought into the presence of God, but not for having been made clean? And so Christian, I know you have doubts. And I know you have struggles. And I know it feels as though sometimes you, you drag around the filth of your past. But in Christ you are clean and you are welcomed into the presence of the Father. You have been washed. You have been purified. And you bring no defilement with you. And because of that, you're free to worship Him, free to serve Him. And lastly, but certainly not least, it shall be a statute forever. Jesus has washed you if you belong to Him as a Christian. He's washed me. He's, he's washed all of us once and for all and forever. And this means, this means that we can leave the yak kid at home. We can, we can leave it at home. We don't have to carry around the container of ashes. We don't have to look for fresh water. We don't have to look for a clean person to sprinkle us with the hyssop 
Why? Because Jesus' sacrifice, the blood of Christ, is sufficient once and for all, forever. One sacrifice for forever. It means that though our our obedience might rise or fall, our mood might rise or fall, our perceived experience of God's grace and that the cleansing, the expiating effects of Jesus' blood might, might rise and fall. It means that our righteousness doesn't. Our status before God, our ceremonially clean status before the Father, it doesn't rise or fall along with those things. It shall be a statue forever, brothers and sisters. And this is really good news. Thanks be to God that He, in His great love for us, sent His Son to die for us, to bleed for us, to purify us, and to welcome us in to His holy presence. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we, we live in a world that is still marked by death. It wasn't just the Israelites who, who deal with death, but we, we do too. We're removed from some of its effects. Most of us aren't dealing with, with dead bodies, for example, on a, on a regular basis. But look, we just have to scan the, the news feeds on our phones to know that the death is everywhere and around us. So many of us have, have lost loved ones and we're, we're well acquainted there as well. And, and, and then, Lord, especially the very least, those of us who, who have trusted in Christ, we, we understand that, that before Jesus breathed life into our, our cold, dead hearts, we were dead before you, spiritually dead. Lord, thank you that you have made a way for unclean people to come into your holy presence. Thank you, Lord, that you have made a way for the dead to rise again. Thank you, Lord, that you have made a way for us to be alive in Christ, resurrected with him, united with him at your right hand. Lord, this is our hope forever. Lord, help us to walk in it, we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.